Clear the load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the emotional, manual, financial, and domestic burden, how do our evolving views on sex, love, gender roles, and power dynamics determine how we share responsibility? I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today, I'm talking to Kate, the naked lawyer. Kate is a lawyer, dominatrix, and last year was diagnosed with autism. How's it going, Kate? Oh, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I'll start by asking you, um, when you were growing up, um, how did you see uh, labor divided within your family? So given the context of my background that you just described, uh, I actually have kind of a strange childhood. My grandparents raised me for the most part. Um, my mom was around, but it was mostly my grandparents that were the like parental figures. And my grandmother is a super matriarch. So um, my, my grandmother worked full time uh, throughout, and actually she's 89 and still works full time. Um, but she worked throughout my childhood full time. Um, and she was everything in the household. So she worked full time, but she also was the the cook and the cleaner and just did all of those kind of like feminine duties or typically feminine duties as as well. What was her job? What was she doing? Uh, she's a she's a clerk at Walgreens. Oh, yeah, wow. she's a clerk at Walgreens. She just did everything. So from a very early age, I saw everything <laughs> fall on, on one person. And that certainly was a little strange, but I think it was formative for me and certainly distorted my views of feminism very early on because I thought to myself, oh, you can do it all. My grandma did it all. Um, but she didn't really, and she has suffered quite a bit from having to kind of carry so so much. Um, what did your where was your grandpa? You know, so my so my grandfather was a music teacher and a jazz musician, so he was a little bit more of like the free floaty artist. You couldn't really get him to do household daily things, um, <laughs> and he was a great like. He's a great father figure in some respects, but also wasn't great at um, wasn't great at I guess like facilitating um, parental duties and expectations from from us. I have a twin brother as well, um, but yeah. So my my grandmother just had to be this totally put together, you know, and also she was very, very, very feminine. She had the high heels. She was a, you know, how, you know, World War II housewife, like she did it. Um, but yeah, she just played all of the roles. Um, and yeah, it has definitely distorted my perception of hmm. what the role should be. I've, I've always kind of thought to myself that I had to do it all. I had to be sexy, and I had to be professional, and I had to have a job, and I also had to, you know, facilitate the difficult conversations for partners and friends and, and play all the roles. So, yeah. Hmm. 
Did you also see her doing like the majority of the emotional labor in her really or in the family? That sometimes yes and sometimes no. Because a lot of times she was just so exhausted that I think when it came down to you know, disagreements, uh, she would just kind of throw up her hands and walk <laughs> away. Um, and she was very quick to, you know, if she had, well, kind of going through some of these memories, it's funny because, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I recently was diagnosed with autism and have, through that discovery, realized that actually there's a lot of explanation for my family members' behavior growing up hmm. um, as well. I think that most, if not all of them, are, are also autistic. And and so she would definitely have meltdowns when things got kind of heated or things were difficult as far as, you know, problems that arose or fights that arose. And she would just throw up her hands and say, you know, I'm going, I'm going back to work or, or I'm going to go do whatever I need to do. Um, so I think really that kind of emotional labor, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of, uh, of like firm work in the emotional labor department. I think a lot of my family members just didn't, didn't really spend the time to fix problems. And we all just kind of had to work through things alone, but together a lot of the time. There were five people in one house. Mm. Um, but but yeah, when when the, when it really needed to be be done, she she was also the person to do that. Cool. Um, so I didn't know that you had a twin brother. Um, yes. Can you talk a little bit about uh, like understanding that you were not a boy and that your brother was a boy and that you were a girl and that he was not a girl? Well. It, my brother is a very interesting character. He has a, he has a lot of difficulties and has really struggled through life. Um, just managing what I now expect to also be autism and a lot of, he had a lot of attention and learning difficulties when he was growing up. And so we were always together, but always separated quite firmly, um, but when we were very, very young, we just played together and did the same things together that you know you do when you're a kid. But both of us, when we were very young, were really into, I guess, more masculine activities. We really loved to take apart furniture and this is not good. I'm sure we have some sort of like radiation poisoning, <laughs> but we would like, take apart old TVs. I don't know how anybody didn't know we were autistic, um, but we frequently were just doing strange, like, and we had like, we had access to a lot of tools under the age of five. <laughs> and uh, we, yeah, we would like go out in the backyard and we had this kind of like fort that we were in this constant state of building and, and rebuilding and taking apart. We were just hammering away at things. And we loved to do that stuff when we were very little. And there was a shift, I think maybe when we were five or six, which was also when I got my own room because it finally became clear that there needed to be a little bit more separation between us for many years we just slept in the same bed with my mm. mom I don't know, like some weird midwest families are, <laughs> are like oh yeah we did that too um but um 
but yeah, it was, a, we were like five or six before it was really clear that we were, we were different in that way, but then it was a very hard shift because mm. that's when I think, um, little boys get inundated with, you know, the, these are the types of toys you're supposed to play with. You're not supposed to enjoy dolls. You're not supposed to enjoy these softer things. And I think that was also around the time that someone showed him, you know, uh, cap guns and army things and uh, like very, very, very like dramatically masculine toys. Um, and he got really, really, really into that, but still had like a, you know, a soft side to him really would like negotiate with me to like use my dolls in like, (laughs) in like GI Joe scenarios that he had, um, because, you know, he needed like female love interests and, (laughs) um, and, and also just wanted like a, a setting for, you know, some of the scenarios. So he needed the dollhouse every once in a while. So, so there was like some, there was definitely like there was a clear line at a certain age, but then there was there were some tugs every once in a while where you saw that he kind of still was looking for that kind of experience, but it was made clear to him that you know this is not really like cool or okay, hmm. but he was still himself. It's one thing I can give to my brother. Yeah. <laughs> so for you, understanding that you were a girl when you thought as a child about the woman that you wanted to become, um, what, what did that look like for you? Well, every day my grandmother would tell me that I needed to marry a rich man. Mm-hmm. I am not joking. This is the thing that she said to me every single day. And she sometimes would variate the tone in her <laughs> voice and the exact words that she used. But it was just a very constant, you need to marry a rich man. This changed at some point when I was, you know, maybe like in grade school, it started to become, well, you know, if you do something, then you don't have to do that. You, you can, you know, if you become a professional, then you can like escape this, this like need to be taken care of by a man. But at the same time, just the whole way the household was set up was very much a flake women serve the men in the house. Um, so my brother having a lot of um, behavioral difficulty and learning difficulties, there was a lot of, um, not I don't want to say placation, but this expectation that you just just needed to give him a mile uh, or, or give him a lot of room to kind of adapt to to things and to adapt to needs and kind of figure out what's going on. And then with my grandfather, who just didn't really do anything around the house, it was all very much about, like, we were all serving these two men um, in our lives. And my mother was also in the house. Um, but, but, yeah, I think that it was it was quite literal. Like I, I quite literally got a lot of messages about like, this is what you have to do to survive. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't even like, Oh, this is just what's expected, but this is what you like have to do to survive in this world. We grew up, I grew up in a really, um, kind of shitty place. Uh, Kankakee, Illinois, which in 1999 was ranked the worst place to live in the United States <gasps> and Canada. David Letterman gave us some gazebos. It's okay. We're doing all right now. Um, but but yeah, so there was very much this uh, literal 
set up that if you want to get out of here, you've got to be this kind of woman, which also kind of meant that sexually I was very repressed from a very young age because sex meant babies, which meant you get stuck here. Mm. So, and that was never like very literal, but you also kind of acquire that, like, you know, as you grow up in a town like that, that like, oh, well, if you get pregnant, you have the baby and then you stay here and you never leave. Um, So I think those things... Um, are the things that I think about being like the most resonant for me about like mm. the differences between men and women that mm-hmm. like being a woman can trap you and you have to serve in order to be safe. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what um, led you to go to law school and the kind of, cause that really is a position of power the way that I see it. That's a very powerful position to be in. Um, and can you connect that to your decision to become a dominatrix? Yeah. Um, so law school for me was very much the, like the alternative escape that I was provided. So I was given two options, either you marry a rich man or you like, you know, become something where you don't have to do that. Right, like your own person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it has to be like, you know, really, really good uh, in order to get you out of that kind of decision-making. But yeah, for me, it was this thing that I knew or I thought that I could be good at. Um, I always very much was a writer. I was very, very good at writing and those types of skill and in arguing, um, those types of (laughs) skills were I was always really good at them so I thought oh yeah you know this is the thing that you do I guess when you're good at those things and you really need to make some money because you're not rich already um and I thought that it would be the thing that helped me get my family out of poverty as well so it wasn't really that I wanted to be a lawyer it was just that from the the needs that I had it seemed like the most logical route I was also really political um at the time like in High school and college, you know, these were Bush two years, and, you know, he's such an idiot, so I really you know, wanted to do something about that. You know, why are these people in power, and um, people like my family are still, you know, struggling, and so anyhow, so I thought that it was the way out, um, and now that I know more about my, you know, my autism, it, it makes a lot of sense, because that I would be interested in the law because it's just a bunch of rules, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So rules are super comforting for, for autistic people because we don't have to, a lot of times we're just guessing and we're running scripts in order to get through the world. And the law is a thing that like is a script. Here are all of the rules and then you follow them and you get to the answer. There's precedent. And, right, yeah. right, um, right. So it's comforting in that way for sure as well. Um, but then I did it, and law school was very strange. Law school was very strange. There, um, there are a lot of the same kinds of people um, in like higher end law school. So I went to what was at the time like a top twenty law school. Uh, thanks everybody. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of money and effort to get there, um, but. So I, I, I went to law school at the University of Illinois, College of Law, which is, a, it's, a, it's a pretty good law school, right? It's top 20, um, one of the big schools that pulls in a lot of like Chicago suburban elite who, you know, don't want to pay the big ticket of going to University of Chicago or Northwestern. 
And so you've got a lot of folks from really, really, really wealthy suburban families. And I didn't know anything about those kinds of people <laughs> at all. Really, I had gone to under, you know, I'd gone to undergrad mostly online, just like done, you know, done whatever to get through as fast as I could while working full time. Um, and so I didn't really like interact with a lot of people through school until law school. So um, it was just a very isolating experience where very few people had had any sort of like alternative upbringing. Um, certainly were not a lot of people who were raised by their grandparents or raised in like kind of strange, you know, stranger family situations. Um, and almost no one grew up in poverty or, or really anything other than like extreme privilege. <laughs> um, so, so it was very clear to me like when I got there that I kind of just felt like I wasn't supposed to be there. And that feeling never went away, ever. Um, and I think that for the most part, I persevered. I did all the things in law school that you're supposed to do if you want to have like a really elite career. Um, so like the big things that you're supposed to do when you go to law school, is like the, the biggest thing is that your first semester grades have to be stellar. After your first semester, it's like almost doesn't matter. Your first semester is that important. Um, it's not true. It still matters, but it's really important. And then you have to, you have to either get onto law review by having fantastic first semester grades or by writing on. Um, I had really good grades first semester, but not like just a smidgen below what I could like automatically get into law review. And so what I wrote- What is law review? Law Sorry. review. What is law review? This is like an existential question. What is law review? <laughs> law review is like, you know, like Barack Obama was on law review, you know, like and people like the New York Times writes articles about when people of color become the editor in chief of law, of the, the respective law reviews at the the big schools. It, it is just, it's the thing that you have to do to um, be in that like law school elite, but it, it's a publication. It's mm. it's it's just uh, you know there's a there's a board that selects. So like each school has their each school own has one of them. Their own. Oh, okay, yeah, and students write notes and submit and can and can be on the law review. But for the most part, most of the publication, and I think it's like what did people what did they publish? I think it's maybe like. A couple times a year, but so each um, each issue of the law review will have like you know a few articles from professors nationally, um, and then a few of the articles will be from students. And usually there's like a issue area or something like that. But but basically it's like the fancy publication. So if you can get your work published, if you can get on law review, that's step one. Then you, if you can get your stuff published in the law review, you're like really big kahuna in like mm. law school. Um, and afterwards, it just follows you forever. And so that whole thing where all of this stuff that you're doing over like a very small period of time, like follows you forever was this really, really, really new concept for me. And I had always been good at really, you know, driving any, any goal that I had home, but unlike most of the people I went to law school with, I worked full time against the ABA rules. You can come find me, ABA. <laughs> um, they're really serious. You, your school can get in trouble, actually, if you uh, if you work. You're, you're not supposed to work more than 20 hours a week. And what? I was just like, well, I don't know. I don't know who can do that. Yeah, so. I mean, wait a second. How are you supposed to right, not oh. work? Right. 
Um, you're supposed to be rich. You're supposed yeah. to be the expectation when you go to law school is that you came are from privilege. Rich. Yeah, you are you're already rich. Um yeah, it's it's impossible. It really is impossible. So, um so I I was working fairly close to full time when I was going to law school, actually for most of almost all of it. What, um, what's the what's the reason for that? The Why do they reason, not want you to work? The reason is that you you're supposed to be focusing on your scholarship. But according to whom? The, you know, I don't know. The, That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, well, right. So, so like, the expectation, I think, that the American... So this, when I say the ABA, I'm talking about the American Bar Association. The expectation that the American Bar Association has is that your law... And this is, this is a rule that is impacts the law school. So if the the law school can get in trouble if the ABA finds out that students are working more than 20 hours per week. But but the expectation is that the law school should be providing enough support for their students so that they don't have to work hmm. while they're going to school, but in reality they don't. So, um it's kind of like this dumb silly rule that shames poor kids while they're in law school and yeah the law schools don't really do anything about it and and will like chastise you if they think that you might be doing it but also they don't my school in particular didn't really get on my ass about the fact that you know like we know you're working so but but yeah but anyhow so to summarize like I kind of just always felt like I was the like on this island in in, in law school and was doing all of the things on paper that I think I was supposed to do, right? But having been autistic and not realized it, I didn't know how much relationships really mattered in a law school itself and the opportunities that arise like while you're in law school, but also afterwards those classmates who you have nothing in common with because they come from privilege and families that you don't understand, you have to be friends with them to get jobs later on Mm -hmm. and to get opportunities and to get business. And although they really tried to teach us networking, I just, I never understood it. And and I understood it as like this weird thing that I was being forced to do, but like didn't know why. And now I understand a little bit more, but so anyhow, I I started a career that, you know, I I made it to even despite, you know, not having all of the things that I probably should have had um, after law school. But I started a career in government. I worked for a judge and then I worked for an agency that oversees the police and sheriff departments doing policy work um, during actually the summer where uh, most people remember more police violence than usual. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, And then... I made so little in that job that I ended up uh, jumping ship and going the corporate route. And I, I worked in-house counsel for a healthcare company. And all in the span of a few years, which as all the millennials know, is just how we do things. Um, but of course, like the old people in the uh, legal field are like, why are you jumping around so much? You don't show dedication. Mm. So there's this like constant tug and pull between the folks who have and have the opportunity to give you opportunity and like the realities that we're living and existing in. Right. Um, and by the time I got to my in-house role, it was about, I started about a week before the election. Um, and so I guess this is a long soliloquy, but it has a point. Uh, but so I started about a week before the election and at the time I was in a very long-term relationship 
and the election obviously didn't go the way that we we a lot of people thought (laughs) that it would um and all of a sudden i was like the number two in a company in a healthcare company that had no idea what the future looked like um and this was my first really like big career job um that i had had both of my previous positions were kind of they were temporary and 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 also just not um not as heavy hitting as far as responsibilities go so you know a couple weeks in i'm handling these like multi-million dollar deals and just getting phone calls all day and emails all day about hey we don't know how to handle this thing good luck everybody um and legal being the kind of uh epicenter of that anxiety and stress um, because we're lawyers are supposed to know all the answers even though that's not true <sighs> um but but yeah just that shift, I think, and realizing how quickly things change in the world and, and how being a lawyer actually didn't provide me the power and security that I thought that it would. I was paid about 30 or 40 grand under market when I got this in-house role because, I mean, in large part, I think, you know, it was because I was a young woman. It wasn't mm. because I, just because I was a woman, but it was because I was young, um, and they they told me that you know we're gonna pay you we're gonna pay you the least amount that we can pay you and that's kind of why we've hired you we think you can do all of the work and then some but mm. you're gonna be really cheap okay great that's great <laughs> um, so I was already experiencing uh, you know the thing where I was extremely undervalued but completely and totally relied on by you know the people who were under, undervaluing me and and I just thought this sucks. Um, it was also around the time when I was starting to experience the beginning of some health problems that ultimately manifested in some autoimmune issues. And, and, and one day shortly after, you know, shortly after the election, I had been there for a few months. I left my partner of 12 years because I was like, well, I can't change what's going on in the world today, but I can change this. (laughs) Uh, and, and shortly after that, I thought, oh, you know what else I can change? I don't have to do this anymore either. And so I just left um, and ultimately started my own company and just did a very slow unwind from that whole world. It just was never really me. It was this thing that I did that I thought, yes, would get me um, power, security, money, um, uh, a, a profession that I could build my skills in and be rewarded for that work. And never felt that. Um, and so I started my company, which I still have. Um, I Basically, we have a team of ghostwriters, and we, we ghostwrite for other law firms um, and corporate legal departments on mostly complex research, legal research stuff. Um, but even that, to me, felt like inauthentic, and I, I felt like I wasn't really doing any of the work that I set out to do when I was young, and and thought to myself that the law would provide an opportunity to change things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how I got into <laughs> becoming a dominatrix is a little strange. I guess every person's experience of becoming a dominatrix, I hope, is a little strange. Um, but I decided I moved to California after a separate but also similarly unfulfilling relationship um, that... Uh, 
yeah, I, w- I wanted to, a new start, so I come to California, which I hear is like the thing to do. Um, and I really wanted to get barred here. And so, because I thought, you know, if I'm in California, I can start a practice. I have my company. I don't need to be licensed for that because we work in like a sub-practice capacity. But I thought that we, I could get my license and finally work with creatives and other people who I felt like I shared some commonality with. Like maybe I wasn't going to be friends with the big corporate lawyers from suburban Chicago, but but maybe I could make friends in the entertainment world and artists and people who are doing that thing. And I can represent them and I can help them not get screwed. Um so I started studying for the bar, and the bar exam, like law school, is this thing that people just expect you to not work during, and my company is very difficult um, to to manage and also have other things going on if you're really doing it, and so I thought, well, I need something flexible that I can do while I'm studying for the bar exam. You have to study for about like three or four months. Again, a lot of a lot of things for you just expect to be rich and not working. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but then nobody wants to pay you, even if you have a really perfect resume. Um, <laughs> it's really sad. Um, <laughs> but but so I thought to myself, well, you know, I did this boudoir shoot for a boyfriend of mine a few years ago, and those photos are pretty hot. Maybe I could, like, cam as the naked lawyer. Wouldn't that be funny? So I could be, like, you know, studying and like describing these like legal concepts, but legal concepts, but in like kind of like a burlesque tone. So it was kind of like a hack for me to make money while I was studying. <laughs> wow. Um, and so I made an Instagram and a Twitter and some other things. And uh, I started making my own content by myself, not really having any idea really what I was doing because I'd really never used social media before in any serious way i just would take pictures of my dog um or plants uh and and yeah i i just got a lot of interest really quickly just from the instagram because at first it was the naked lawyer it has since been deleted several times thank you sesta fosta uh and instagram's terrible policies that harm women and women identifying people um but um but yeah, I got a lot of interest really quickly and got a lot of photographers right away who were like, hey, would you want to shoot with me? And I'm like, what does that mean? Um, and so I started nude modeling, as essentially, <laughs> uh, like a couple weeks after starting this Instagram um, and realized, oh, I can make money doing this. And this is way easier than <laughs> camming and just being on all the time. And what I didn't realize then, I got I got diagnosed just shortly after starting this Instagram, um, I was so intimidated by the idea of like really truly doing something like this, but but live and just being on. And I didn't realize that you're autistic. But <laughs> now that I know, I'm like so glad that I didn't can because it just would have not been good for me. And it probably wouldn't have been good for anybody else either. <laughs> it just would have been awkward. It wouldn't have worked. Um, but yeah, so I started doing this nude, nude modeling thing. And so I had all this content right away. And so I started making subscription services. Anybody that's familiar with like the sexy girl internet, um, knows that there's, yeah, a bunch of these women who kind of are, you know, online personas just for being them, for being themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and for being, for being willing to, you know, show that part of themselves. So a lot of the content that I was making 
wasn't really porn, but then some of it later really was. <laughs> um, but but I really liked it. And it was by this time, by the time that I'm starting to do more photo shoots, um, I, had, I had just gotten diagnosed um, with autism, Asperger's, although Asperger's doesn't actually exist anymore because Hans Asperger was a Nazi. So <laughs> we don't talk about Asperger's anymore. I didn't um, but, but I realized that being in this situation where I was nude or almost nude in these intensely intimate both scenarios and poses with somewhat of a stranger was very cathartic and very healing for me and was also like um, a little bit of therapy, a little bit of coaching because you're being told, hey, move your face like this. And I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't know how to do that unless I can like see it. Or So it, it kind of helped me get more in my body and, and realize some of my difficulties with communication and anyways, things like that. And, um, so that was really awesome. And I decided, well, this is weird. I really like this stuff. How do I make a career out of this stuff because selling content online even like so I had subscription services set up so people would pay to get access to my photos and my Mm -hmm. videos and things like that on a regular interval but then I also sold content directly to to folks who would hit me up and say hey I really want a video of you like bending over wearing this and like saying how much you hate like white dudes in the patriarchy <laughs> and I'm like oh yeah no problem babe I got that for you right here for how much uh, yeah for how <laughs> yeah right well and one of the one of the great things about all of this was I realized even after starting my own company I was able to make more money per hour doing this work even even just me being sexy you know not as like a lawyer I was making more money per hour than I was making with my own company. And I thought, yeah, I'm done. Mm-hmm. You know, I I can't go back. But then where do I go from here? Where do I go from here where I can still maintain the same level of progress? So um so the be, becoming the dominatrix uh was has been a little bit more of a slow path. I think at some point Maybe a few months ago, I realized that the, all the content that I was making was was not really what I wanted to make. I wanted to make stuff about you know me being kind of a bad, smart bitch, and and able and like willing to put that hat on. And direct content, I was able to 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 do that quite a bit more because there was there was a market who wanted that, but. At the same time, I was still doing what somebody was like asking me to do, and I didn't feel like it was as powerful as if I could be doing it in person. And so it took me a few months of just soul searching and actually getting a lot of coaching and support from one, really one friend of mine who's a performance artist who was like, no, you need to be, do do this for real, do what you really wanted to do with it. Um, and so I thought that the best way for me to really change, make an, in, make an actual impact on people um, was to offer sessions in person. Um, because if I'm going to change the minds of 
men about power and gender roles and you know expectations of like what women are capable of I think that I'm more able to do that in person and so I looked for an office or for a space because I wanted to have I wanted to have the control I didn't want to go to a dungeon and and plus it's like not my vibe um Mm -hmm. but so I I looked for a space I found this cool old like detective office looking thing for cheap as sin in downtown Los Angeles and I'm like it's on like Donkey Kong like I'm just gonna do this (laughs) um and so I rented this space and I've been slowly filling it um and yeah, now I now offer, uh, you know, one to, to three hour sessions where there's still an expectation that I'm going to be told what somebody is interested in from an experience, but you're coming into my office. It looks like a law office. This is my space. I tell you what to do. And that's what you're paying me for. And it's great. Like the whole trajectory that I've had through my life I feel like this this is the space where I have the opportunity to have the most power and have the most um I guess like full circle uh opportunity to a have you know some challenge it's extremely challenging to devise well as you know to devise a sexual or erotic experience for someone. Mm-hmm. And so just to be clear, I don't offer any services in violation of California law. Um, but, <laughs> but it's still an, it's still an intensely erotic experience and it, that creating like just, so I'm doing everything with this space because well, we've talked about this I, I love, con- I love control <laughs> and, and I also like interior design. And so I'm, <laughs> so, you know, I'm just filling a lot of boxes for myself, but I'm, I've created this space that when you come in, it just, it just bleeds and drips power. Like I want somebody to come in and instantly feel like they're on their knees already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they're, that hasn't happened yet. Um, they just and, fall. Uh, they down. just fall to their knees. There's just so much wood and These carvings. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so cre- having the power to just go, you know, top to bottom, create an experience, and to have that kind of level of vision and and control, it is the, the first time in my life that I've really been able to do that. And I feel like I had the power and the interest in doing that before, but. I was doing this thing that I thought that you did in order to escape whatever it was that I was trying to escape. Mm. Um, But it's interesting too that it, that that thing that you did because you thought that you should actually gives you now a niche and an aesthetic and a, and a theme to what it is that you're doing now that seems like very unique to you. Right. I, uh, I have been very blessed to be in a position where I've sat on this idea for almost really a year from the point of which I was like, oh, I'm going to do this, where I make content about being a lawyer, but also it's fucking hot and turns you on and also makes you interested in rules and boundaries and consent, right? Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I got I got to just sit on it because it's like who else is gonna do this? Um, although truthfully, there are other there are a couple other attorney sex workers, but they have not been similarly privileged 
to be in a position where they can be out as sex workers. Mm-hmm. I have an incredibly good relationship with my bar association and with the <laughs> attorney regulation uh, council uh, for the state of Colorado, which is where I am barred. Um, but but yeah, I I was able to set up a scenario where yeah, I'm extremely privileged and and kind of gotten have been able to sit on it for a little bit. Nobody can kind of can really replace me in this scene. Although I hope people do. I hope that and there has been a shift in in online con- online sexual content. Um, there has been a shift with you know there are there are things like ASMR and and there are other um it's I guess it's kind of still sad that I can be like well ASMR is kind of sapiosexual content but um there are other creators out there who are making content that is sapiosexual and interested in women with actual power Mm -hmm. not women who are trying to performing power performing power but women who have Actual, actual power. power. Um, but yeah, I mean, guess what? It's hard to find those folks because most women don't have any power. Mm. Um, and certainly once they have it, they don't want to relinquish it for something like this. But that was part that was also part of why I did this. I felt like, gosh, I am the only one that can do this in this way. And I'm obviously big on decram. I felt like actually doing this work and actually providing... Decriminalizing sex work? Yeah, decriminalizing mm-hmm. sex work. I felt like actually doing this work, even though I would just be doing, you know, Dom work, um, I felt like it was important to, to, to do it, even though I had a lot to lose, because there are a, bun- there are a bunch of people at the bottom of this industry who absolutely have to do this work it is the thing that they know how to do and and they're good at it and it's it's a way for them to get out of whatever situation they're in and maybe they want to do other stuff but they have to do it we all have to work we all have to find some shitty job that pays us money so that we can buy food and whatever um but I felt like if I could do something that raised enough interest and attention and hopefully autistic lawyer sex worker is is like <laughs> is up there enough. is like get yeah will raise some interest or attention i felt like if i did that work that's instantly more than like you know 90% of this population can do because they just don't have they don't have whatever right check boxes where people will listen to them and take them seriously. They're sex workers. They're nothing. Well, fuck that, mm-hmm. right? Like, if somebody will listen to me, I can show them that sex work, A, is work, and B, is transformative work. Um, and we've talked about the book Pleasure Activism by mm-hmm. Adrian Marie Brown um, a little bit in our uh, separate life outside of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that some of the most uh, important things that we sh- need to be doing as far as progressive activists and changing um, the power structures that exist right now is changing this idea that we need to be ridding the world of something as our only goal and instead feeding ourselves and feeding our bodies and and a big part of that is changing perspectives on the erotic and changing mm-hmm. perspectives on sex. 
um, and finding ways to find pleasure and joy, maybe not just sexually, but finding ways to find pleasure and joy that are consensual and that feed ourselves and feed others so that we can continue doing all of the work that is required to change the power structures. Yeah, what you're saying is, I mean, what's coming to mind for me is that I think a lot of even the activism around, um, you know, activism in favor of um, protecting sex workers from, you know, the the viewpoint that, like, we would subscribe to and not the po- viewpoint of, like, eliminate sex work, mm-hmm. you know, um, is mostly about harm reduction, right? Like, it's mostly right. about um, health and um, protecting people from, you know, whatever. But what you're talking about is seeing, is painting sex work in a completely new light where it's actually a nourishing, like, art form it for you and for sex workers that there's a potential there for it to actually be a really um beautiful and uplifting experience not just like we need to protect sex workers from harm yeah and truly it's a nourishing art form for everybody that's involved everybody that touches it there's an opportunity for for positive yeah, tra- transformation. Um, and again, I'm certainly existing in a world so full of privilege right now. Um, I just want to throw that in there while mm-hmm. I talk about this. Because um, I'm, a, I'm a white woman. Obviously, there are some things that I don't have to be as concerned about when I am making this kind of art and doing this kind of, doing this kind of work. Um, but one of the reasons that I felt, you know, one of the many reasons that I felt like this is it, this is the way, this is what I'm doing. I certainly am a person who serves. I love serving. Um, and I learned very quickly when I was making, um, content for people and making direct content and also doing some, you know, one-on-one sessions, um, with folks was that, men are going through something right now (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that's a real fucking thing and we don't say that but the reality is the way our brains work is that when you take something away it feels way worse than when you're given something that's Mm -hmm. just yeah the foundation is shaking and power is being redistributed that's why when we have a bad like you know commercial experience or uh, you know we leave a bad review and are less likely to leave a good review when right. we have something, you know, a great experience. Um, so what's happening with men right now, and particularly white men, is that you went from things are all right, things are always going to be all right, to you're kind of like public enemy, number <laughs> two, or, you know, three, mm-hmm. like you're up there. And, and, all of a sudden, you have all these, and it shouldn't have been all of a sudden, let's just say that, <laughs> but but certainly culturally, it was kind of all of a sudden that you have this feeling that, wait, we need to change, we need to change the way that we're interacting, we need to change not just how we're interacting in our personal and romantic, you know, settings, but also our professional settings, and this was truly new for a lot of people, and and. Again, maybe it shouldn't have been, but I felt it as I was providing services to people. The kinds of content that I was being asked for 
very often centered around this need to kind of let go of some of that, you know, frustration and guilt about, you know, being a white man and being um, in this position of power that you've probably abused mm-hmm. a lot, you know. Um, but hard not to. But didn't, yeah, but you didn't know. And again, <laughs> maybe you should have. But <laughs> but you didn't. And And so I felt like, you know, this is a place where we can heal a lot of people. And sex is healing. Coming is healing. Fe- feeling any kind of release. Sex doesn't just have to be about coming. It, you know, there's a lot of releases that can go on. Um, and it's good. It, we need, like our bodies need that. Like we, we need to have a way to reduce stress, but also to feel good with another person and embraced and it yes yes I think last night I was at an art show and there was an installation piece that was like these fuzzy like fluffy um arms and a head and a body and behind them uh, a human put their hands in the arms oh, I wonder in a if wall I know who this is um and and so you couldn't see who the person was and so you would like lean into this sort of angel cushion mm-hmm. and they would but you embrace the, you but you hug the cushion they they would wrap their arms around you or like rock you or pat you and it like I went to do it multiple times I mean it was like it was a, it was such a high, like it was so, it was such an immediate like oxytocin release mm-hmm. and feeling of like relaxing. I f- took a huge deep breath and you couldn't, I couldn't wipe a smile off my face. I wonder if this is the same artist. There's another, potentially another artist who has been showing around recently in Los Angeles. And when I saw her, she dressed in this really quite dominatrix mm. um rubber red rubber suit where you had there was no um you couldn't see her face there were just all these screens that you could tap and she would like send messages so that the screens would say hug me now or touch me mm-hmm. now and so all you're doing when you see her is like you see the screens and it's like hug me and you're like okay robot woman mm-hmm. um and that's the experience that's her art is that she goes up to people in these sounds settings. like the same person i feel I, like it's the same person do you we know her find, name i i don't remember her oh. name but we can find out and i can yeah so you can i, tell I bet people. it was the same person but my point is that i think that what you're offering is this service for people to have a release whatever kind of release that is whether it's emotional physical, whatever, whatever this thing is. And what people are coming to you for is a redistribution of power, right? Like they want to pay you so that they don't have to be in control anymore. They're typically people who are in a lot of control and have a lot of power and they want to relinquish that. And money actually gives, provides boundaries to that. There's no, like that is the exchange. So there doesn't need to be reciprocity in the same way. And I think that what you're talking about is as with this as an art form is like, I want that to be, you're in a really unique place to be an incredible activist for this kind of work. You have a law degree and you're given your background and that you are a politically active person. And then to be doing this work and to be thinking about it in like such a holistic and all encompassing way, I think like that puts you in a really special position to fight for the rights for people who do what you do 
that I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to watch it unfold. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the word sapiosexual. Um, cause that's a word that you kind of have taught me how to use in a funny way. When I learned the word sapiosexual, I remember thinking like, duh, you know, like, right. yeah, I'm attracted to smart people and like, isn't that obvious? But then <laughs> what I, what I, what I didn't really understand. And like, now that I look back at kind of my own sexual history is like, I can't, I can't sleep with strangers and I can't <laughs> sleep with people that I don't like at all. Like I don't have to see a potential for a relationship, but I have to like the person mm-hmm. and demisexual. Right. Right. So that's also like on the asexuality spectrum, which yeah. is also really interesting to me because I yeah. feel to be like, I feel that I'm a, a rather sexual person, mm-hmm. but it's, but this word sapiosexual, like when you're talking about making sapiosexual content where it's like the, what's sexy about it is the way that it stimulates you intellectually. Um, that's, that's just really very interesting to me that you're like characterizing your entire, like all of your work, um, under that umbrella. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. I mean, I think in order to make like truly transformative and feminist porn and otherwise sexual content, um, it has to be a little sapiosexual because I think that so much damage has been done and maybe, oh man, I'll probably like go back and like regret saying that, but, but so much damage has been done by the, the industry, um, to, to place women in these faux powerful roles in scenes and ultimately bring them back to like this position of submission well it's always it's power given to women by men and right. then filmed through the male gaze right so it's right it's not always actually it's it's inauthentic right well and you know we've talked a little bit about this but one of the struggles that I have had dating is that I often I'm just employed as this like kind of hot babe who's a lawyer so whoa whoa, that's so cool (laughs) so tell me about what you think about this for a second and then I'm gonna tell you for an hour what I think about it I just wanted I just want to tell you a very quick anecdote (laughs) that I was on a date recently and he was like where did you go to school what did you study and I was like I went to Columbia and I studied philosophy and he kind of like this like look washed over his face and I was like um you know what what and and he was like I really like intelligent women. I just wanted to vomit. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I know I said, I said, I, I fucking hope so. Like, I don't yeah. know what else you're doing here with me. Well, and part, I mean, so part of the thing that men are going through, right, is that all of a sudden things are very different. But also, right, things are changing in the world. Women are starting to, like, achieve some things in some places. And, and, but men still feel this extreme burden to be the best and do the best. And, and maybe they don't all act on that, that burden, but men are extremely intimidated by educated women, women with high profile careers, like I have a gubernatorial appointment from a presidential nominee. No big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> um, but but like I can't I can't really say anything in my you know 
my internet dating, uh, my internet dating profiles about my actual accomplishments because it would make men literally piss themselves. I would never fuck men. And I probably wouldn't fuck a lot of women either because it's just this weird, you know, like, so, well, what's interesting to me about this, because I, I mean, mm -hmm. I think I am also familiar with this issue where like the facts of my life on paper mm -hmm. are going to be intimidating to certain people. Right. Mm -hmm. And like everything I, I look at everything at this point through this lens of like the question of insecurity mm -hmm. and what you're talking about that's going on on such a huge scale with like men at large is that there's this insecurity that's happening. The foundation is moving beneath them. Everything that they thought was theirs forever right. is now because there's also a scarcity mentality, right? Yeah. Like, if, well, if she can have it, then I can't have it anymore. She's taking it away from me, mm -hmm. but I don't believe in that scarcity mentality. And who the hell does she think she is? Right. And I've, and I was told all <laughs> along that I would never be in danger of losing these things. And now right. I have to contemplate how to hang on to them. And right. there's this defensiveness, there's a jealousy, like right. all these things that come out of insecurity, these hor this judgmentalness, right? Like, and you right. see it with like trolls on the internet, like, right. you know, if you posted the right thing on Instagram or the wrong thing, depending on how you're looking at it, right. someone's going to say, fuck you, die. I'm going to rape you. Right. Like, because they, there's such a the perceived threat of like you in your own power. Right. Even though it has absolutely nothing to do with this random troll on the internet. Right. So there's something about that, that foundational insecurity that is making people like reach out and try to take power away from people instead of looking at it as though there's no limit to how much there is to go around. Right. And I think that was part of like, I thought that there was just a lot of work that could be done, you know, in this, in this space with that as far as the sapiosexual con getting back to the original question, I have a tendency to get off of the original question. Um, keeping it together. But, um, but, but yeah, the, I, f I felt like, you know, yeah, there's obviously some, some really deep stuff going on. That's new that nobody is really, you know, I feel like a sociocultural masseuse. <laughs> And I'm just like really I love that. Digging into the deep knots deep of tissue. the deep tissue of sociological what? masseuse. And I say I do talk about men being the like the purchasers of my it, for the most part it is. And I think that that has largely been because um, women haven't been told that being sexual is okay enough. And so wanting or feeling like you need to purchase sexual content in order to have whatever release you want just unfortunately hasn't been normalized enough and I don't I don't advertise enough I am queer but I don't advertise enough that I'm like queer friendly please come to me ladies mm -hmm. um but please come to me ladies you've now used like in social you were talking about in dating how you are employed you use the word employed oh I and now you've talked about adv advertising yourself in through your identity yeah. <laughs> I love this language that you're using around well, marketing yourself well and transactional stuff I mean right that it is we exist in capitalism and and capitalism it is an extremely problematic system but at the same time you can't like ignore the realities under which you are living um but but yeah as far as like making sex, sexual content and why that's important um 
I am a bad bitch. And I have been made to feel like I'm not a bad bitch by a lot of abusive partners and people in life and things because what? I intimidated them. And I was weird, you know, the autistic thing. Um, which, which, like, now that I know, I have, like, a little bit more power in my mind with that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Well, there's, like, an ownership over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, once I get more comfortable with being myself, I can kind of overthrow that a little bit. But I felt like making sapiosexual content and content that that truly is, you know, yeah, me talking and talking about concepts that are, you know, stimulating in intellectually was a way to really make content where a woman is actually powerful. And there are other folks who, like I said, like do this kind of thing, but it is just harder to find again, because how many people are going to leave the thing that is paying them money and maybe gives them health care um, to to do this kind of work um, and play that role here. But yeah, I felt like it was it was important and people want it. And I learned that people wanted it through dating. Mm. Like I had so many dates where, yeah, I was I felt like I was just, you know, collected and employed to sit there and listen to their thoughts on, for you free. know, <laughs> yeah, right. For free. Listen to their thoughts on how they almost went to law school or <laughs> or or how they had thought about it or, you know, their thoughts on Bernie or whatever this campaign. And like sometimes it was stuff that like, you know, I've done a million things in my in my legal and policy career, like I've you know worked for a lot of the people that people are talking about right now. And I've I've worked on issues that a lot of people are talking about. And so to have to just sit there and listen to some man's opinion who has no experience with it whatsoever and I'm like by the way I worked on that issue that passed this bill you know and 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 they're like oh yeah well this is what I think about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you know I I knew that there was some sort of like yeah like men do want to be taken seriously intellectually and there is a stimulation there with like oh if I can do that with a woman who's really fucking smart like that'd be so hot like fuck yeah that I think does a lot of work to change the, you know, expectations of right. who women and men should be um, in the public sphere. Yeah. I think it's awesome that you're monetizing this. I think it's really, really <laughs> fucking cool. Um, okay. So I wanted to just wrap up by asking you a question that I'm going to put to everybody um, to name uh, three people and or media that have been formative for you oh my gosh um and so I've thought about this and it's funny it's so hard to articulate something like that um but what I suppose the first person that has been really formative for me right now um well I've reinvented myself so many times, so it does kind of feel exclusionary to be like, these are the three people, because each time I've transitioned... Let me phrase it differently. Yeah. Um, Media or people who have helped you get to exactly this moment in your life. So I'll just say collectively bad partners, Mm. um, because each time I've been in a bad relationship or in a bad partnership or in a bad sexual or romantic or even bad friendship... I learned something about myself from it and about how we as human beings go through shit and deal with the shit that we're going through. And that helped me to get to a place where I could say to myself, oh, these are my interests. 
I'm going to follow those interests or this is what I need right now. I'm going to tell people what I need. I learned most of that stuff from it really traumatizing bad experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be good in some way. So uh, that I would say, yeah, is one of the big formative things for me is like taking something from everything that has gone wrong in my life, which has been a, a lot, um, but coming from where I came from. But the second uh, like person or thing, um, I, I actually would maybe say Adrian Marie Brown, this pleasure cool. activism book that I just read really recently. Um, I'm in the middle of it myself because while reading it, I, I, it, it just completely and totally, you know, I, I was doing this stuff before I read this book. And when I read this book, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm an activist. Mm. Um, and that there's just a lot of work that can be done by us just having a better understanding of ourselves as human beings. And, um, I think to be able to be like fully empathic and understanding people, um, we have to find some, and you've talked about this a lot in your work, some comfort and some confidence in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that means that we need to do healing work and healing work is pleasure work. So pleasure work is really fucking important to change the fucking world. So Adrian Marie Brown um, and this pleasure activism book has given me some, has given me a framework and some words and tools and phrases that I can use to talk about the work that I'm doing when before I was like, well, I think that this stuff is is important. Um, And then the, the, the third person or thing, oh gosh, I don't know if you'd want me to say his whole name, but maybe uh, we can add add his Instagram or something later if he's cool with it. But I met a guy, um, his name is Kyle and he's a, he, well, he used to be an art curator, but he's also a performance artist and just totally wacky. Um, and when we met, he just accepted me as being this person that was in transition and, you know, learning about myself as like an artistic person. And he's just been there for me and, and like pushing me to do this whole thing. So really thanks Kyle behind every great woman, there's a white man. Thanks Kyle. (laughs) Um, uh, but not me there's two currently right <laughs> yeah, now there's two, there's two other white men who have helped us a lot thanks guys. Uh, thanks guys um but but no without him I I wouldn't have because part of my goal part of my goal with this with the office and space that I'll be offering services in is to show it at itself as a piece um that's going to be mostly about uh critique of finance capitalism and the laws placed within it and how there actually is no justice um but he he took me from you know this woman who was you know a lawyer but also like doing weird sexy stuff on the internet to like no this is art do it do it do it and just being there whenever he could um to offer actual labor or um you know supportive emotional labor he's let me borrow a truck to move Mm. fantastical pieces of furniture across los angeles um and it's just shown me that, yeah, performance and art are things that I have access to that I didn't, you know, I had this very formal background. I didn't know that this was something that I could do. Um, so thanks, Kyle, because... Cool, thanks, Kyle. Yeah, I needed it. <laughs> cool. Um, one of the things that just came to mind when you were talking about the um, pleasure activism book is this idea that I think is part of what you're talking about, that... 
again, with the scarcity mentality around even something like pleasure, where there's like a finite amount of it, and that it's something that we um, need to like hoard and, you know, uh, seek out. And if we're not seeking it out in the right way with the right people, that it could disappear. We could miss it. There's like FOMO around Mm -hmm. pleasure. And I just love this idea that you are having people pay you for your power and the pleasure that you offer and, um, and, and demonstrating indirectly that there's enough to go around. Well, right. And you've talked about this a lot in your work, but scarcity mentality just leads people to do terrible things Mm -hmm. to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, It leads to people trying to control other people because they just feel like they need to have something that they know and is secure. Um, and, And certainly I think that, yeah, this pleasure activism read it everybody even just it's a collection of essays you could just read a couple of the essays just one by one um but pleasure needs to be abundant joy needs to be abundant it's so hard for folks to get to that place in their life where they can think that way because so much of our existence is how do we make money Mm-hmm. How do we get by? How do I pay for food? Right. How do survival? I, right. Because capitalism doesn't want you to be like the system doesn't want you to be an abundant person. No, because they want you to keep needing more right. and more and more. To keep needing more and more. But we can escape this system by finding abundance. And and the way that we do that is sometimes gonna be about sex. It maybe often is mm-hmm. going to be about sex because as we've learned, what's what's the deal with all this stuff that's going on with me too? It's not about sex. It's right. about power. And if you can find your own power individually and tap into what you need and find it and get it, you don't need to take it from other people. Right. So hopefully I'm at least in my own space doing that and hopefully will be making people think more about it and also you know remind people that you can be both a professional and a sexual person and 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 that they need not um they need they need not intertwine in a way that is Mm non-consensual i i I can be a professional person have that be out there in the world that i'm also a sexual person but not have it be about this like a manipulative thing like i'm not just out there like you know flashing people you know i'm like hey look i'm sexy i'm sexy we can all be sexy we can all have sex and enjoy sex um and and live together in that world where we talk about it and it's okay because that's the way that it should be completely thank you kate yeah this was great thank you mia thanks for doing this thank you for having me yeah um you can find kate on instagram at the real naked lawyer special thanks to nolan fabricus for the space tyler peterson for the music and pete ziarto at director pete on instagram for helping film and produce this first episode you can reach me at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com